Romans uh, chapter 3. I'm going to read you verses 1 to 9 again. Romans chapter 3. What advantage then has a Jew or the Jew? What is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some didn't believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written that thou, you, God, may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. God is not unjust for inflicting wrath. For then... How will God judge the world? For if the truth of God is increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say their condemnation is just, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. Last week, the message was entitled Questions. Really, we're, we're just going to focus in on this question, are we better than they? That's the focus of of, of verse 9. It's really the focus of 118 all the way through um, the end, almost the end of, of chapter 3. This question here in verse 9, it's the last question. And there, there was four of them. There's been four questions. We read all four of these questions there. Verse 1, verse 3, 5, and 7. Do you understand or, or, or do you see that each of these questions are they're, they're what is called a, a rhetorical device? In other words, one person is speaking. The writer Paul is speaking and, and yet he voices these questions getting into the mind of the complainers against what he's been speaking about. Their complaints against what Paul has been saying. The wrath of God is coming against all of the unrighteousness of men and and the wrath of God is, is, is almost a code word. The wrath of God here means the judgment of God. It's speaking of the final and last judgment of God. The wrath of God comes. That's what it said early in, in chapter 1. And there is a person in the audience here, the theoretical, the rhetorical audience. There's, there's a, a person contemplating what Paul has been saying here. And, and these questions are the chief complaints from the Jewish thinker 
against what he's been speaking about. And, and, and the Jew really so far cannot agree with what he has been saying. And these questions search for flaws in the logic. The, these questions are challenging to Paul's logic. And they are also uh, a challenge, really complaining of God's injustice. In other words, part of the underlying problem that's getting voiced in arguments is, is if God is going to do what you're saying he's going to do, Paul, that's not fair. It's not just. And so Paul is really carefully thinking these questions out loud in the letter. And the Jewish uh, arguer, we can call him an interlocutor, uh, the, the one in the conversation, and it's not a person. Paul, Paul is really probably the chief Jewish intellect, right? I mean, Paul knows the Jewish mind regarding their knowledge of the law, the Jews' knowledge of God, the Jews' history in Moses and in Abraham. Paul knows Jewish life, Jewish hope in God. He knows these things so deeply. And so when we listen to him arguing in this way regarding the Jew, we know that he is... He is doing the Holy Spirit's work to this Jewish complainer that the Jewish complainer might really just put down his arms. He just might surrender and understand that this is indeed man's hope. All the way back in chapter 2, verse 17, look where this discussion regarding the Jew really became focused. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know His will and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law. The Jew, in the Jewish concept of the gospel is is at this point being challenged. The, the, the Jewish concept of the gospel is we are God's people. We have, we've been chosen in Abraham. We are the people of the promise. We're the people who have been given the covenant and have, have circumcised our children on the eighth day, etc., etc. The, the Jewish mind sees himself in this world, in the Christians in Rome, whether they were Jew or Gentile, they're, they're learning to think more deeply about the gospel and challenges to the gospel. And, and here we're realizing that the Jew's security and his concept of his favor to God is being challenged by what Paul is teaching about the gospel. Paul is challenging where they have been rested. He said in 2.1, Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man. So here was this general charge being laid out to the complainers, any gospel complainers. The gospel doesn't convict me. The gospel doesn't apply to me. Paul has said, you are inexcusable, O man. 
So there's guilt being applied to all men. You're inexcusable. Verse 5, he went on to say, you're treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath. What is the Jew doing at 2-1? What is he doing at 2-5? He's probably casually and and very aloof-like standing there, sitting there, thinking, hearing, whatever. It doesn't have anything to do with me. I sure feel bad for those guys who are inexcusable. I sure feel bad for those guys who are treasuring up for themselves wrath in the day of wrath. Verse 6, when God will render to each one according to his deeds... Maybe the Jew began to, maybe that perked up his ears a little bit there, maybe. Because it's now apparent that the gospel is not speaking about wrath for Gentiles. It's speaking about wrath for people who are doing deeds that don't reflect the perfection of in the glory of God, right? The Jew could begin to hear again from these arguments that are being made. But even here, even here, some some have felt to be excluded. Some have found themselves excluded from a personal threat of the wrath of God. But look at verse 12. It's it's focusing tighter and tighter and tighter. Look at verse 12. As many of as many as have sinned without the law will perish without the law. And the Jew can heartily agree with that. Because that's the pagans. Those are you know, anybody who's not a Jew. They all sin without the law. And, and Paul's gospel affirms they're going to perish without the law. But look how he finishes this sentence. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. And that's where the, the focus, that's where a certain person considering the gospel can really begin to feel a degree of, of conviction or anger. Look at what he heard in in 224. 2.24 would potentially really make somebody quite upset if they thought this was being said about them. It says, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Let's just say you've been a Christian for for 10 years, for 20 years. Let's say you're third generation Christian family. All your your parents and your grandparents and and all all the people in your history are Christians. And someone says, you know, people are blaspheming God because of the way you live and speak and talk. Think of how offensive that would be to you. You'd be like, well, what do you mean? We've been following God for 150 years. This is the this is the the feeling that the Jew has when Paul gets there to verse twenty four. The Gentiles, the Gentiles, think and speak about God in this bad way because of the way you live, and so in the mind of the Jew, 
there is a growing irritation. There is a growing resentment building. And again, the, the Christians listening to this message, you and I contemplating on what's being said here, we're, we're getting a greater and greater appreciation for, the, for this certain person who's being brought under the focus of the gospel. The gospel message is focusing on the deeds of a man in the day of wrath. And the Jewish people who are good people, moral people, high ethical standards, they are being brought under the laser focus of the gospel here. In their minds, in their lives, they knew they were blessed. They knew they were favored. And Abraham. So real quickly, as as Paul asked the questions that we saw in in chapter 3, what advantage has the Jew? As, As Paul asked these questions, he answers them one by one. And the scriptures or this this letter that had been sent to the believers in Rome, this letter is going to ask and answer these questions and finish the argument saying this. What is the argument saying? Jew and Greek are all under sin. And the wrath of God is, is coming against all who are under this sin. So when, he, when, when, when hearing Paul's last words of chapter 2, what were some of the audience thinking? What can a, a Jewish person be thinking about this? What advantage has the Jew? And the answer was to them, we're committed to oracles of God. Well, that wasn't a satisfactory answer to many of them, really. They're like, what, really? I mean, you're saying my advantage of being a Jew, my advantage of being related to Moses, my advantage to being in the line of Abraham, having been given the covenant, my advantage is that we are given the oracles. Paul asserts it. I assert that it's true. That was an incredible advantage. If you're a non-Christian raised in a Christian home and you've been taught the gospel from the time you're a child, you hear the words of God, you know the threats and the promises of God, what an amazing advantage that from a young child you can know your own guiltiness before God and His offer of hope in the gospel. How is that not an advantage, right? That's a glorious advantage. But the Jew hears this and and. And I can feel his angst. And like, what do you mean? That doesn't make me happy. That is not the advantage I want. What's the advantage he wants? Heaven. Eternal life. This is what he wants. And Paul is not saying that's what his advantage is. So the next question, what if some did not believe? What does that mean? What if some didn't go to heaven, Paul? We're in Romans chapter 3. Verse 3. That's the second question. 1, 3, 5, 7, and 9 are where the questions are. It's handy. They're all in odd numbers. 1, 3, 5, 7, 9. There's where the questions are. The next question in verse 3, and sorry, the font's so tiny, I didn't even see it in my notes that that it was verse 3. Verse 3 asks the next question. What if some didn't believe? That's like saying, um, Paul, um, if 
if righteousness is by faith, which is way back up there in 1, 16, 17, and 18, right? Then a whole bunch of Jews died and went to hell. And, and if some Jews went to hell, then doesn't that mean that God's promises to be good to the Jews weren't good? Doesn't that mean he's not a promise keeper? Doesn't, doesn't that mean God has proven to be unfaithful to the Jews, Paul? That, that doesn't seem right. What if some didn't believe, Paul? Does their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Doesn't that show that God isn't actually as faithful as we all have been taught to believe he is? So this is a question of God's faithfulness. It's a challenge to God's faithfulness. If Paul's gospel is true, then it means God's not faithful. How does Paul answer the question? No. Obviously that's not true. No. God is always true. Let God always be true and every man a liar. No, that is not a, a reasonable, a logical, a good argument. That's the end of that discussion. So what if some didn't believe? The next question, Paul erases any traction for this question. This question holds no water. Verse 5 if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, shall we say God is unjust to inflict wrath? Interesting question. Our bad, our bad makes God look good. If our bad, if we do bad, if we sin, if we do this and that, and it's bad, but it makes the goodness of God look good, even better by our badness, should we say God is unjust? for inflicting wrath on, on people who serve him in that way? If your bad makes him look good, it wouldn't be quite right for God to inflict wrath on you. That's, that's what this question means. That's what, what this question is here in, in verse 5. And Paul, of course, says, if that was the case, if, if God decided to favor your badness, your unrighteousness, because it makes him look good, how could he judge any? guilt anywhere on earth. Wouldn't all of that have to be left alone to make him look good? And of course the answer is no. He, he can't do that. The, even the Jew knows we can't suggest that God doesn't judge unrighteousness. We, we can't suggest that that's not what he would do. Everybody knows that, that God's justice will finally be rendered and, and God will judge sin. They know that's a silly, stupid argument, so this, this question is answered. Another question in verse 7. The Jews reminded that, yes, of course, God judges unrighteousness. The, the, the next question is very similar to it. If the truth of God is increased through my lying, to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? Very similar question, right? Verse 7. If I lie, doesn't that make the truth look good? If I lie, if I tell lies, doesn't that magnify the greatness of truth? Doesn't that somehow exalt God's truthfulness by lie? And why not say, Paul went on to say, let us do evil that good may come. Why not just say that? Let's, let's just do bad after bad, lie after lie. Let's just do everything wicked. Let's just say everything wicked and it'll make God look awesome. The ones who say such a thing are justly condemned is how Paul ends 
that question. So there are these four questions, verse 1, verse 3, verse 5, verse 7. Paul addresses these questions. I can't, I can't imagine someone who, who thinks that lies would be used to somehow beautify truth. That kind of seems what the, the last question suggests, that lies somehow are going to make truth look good. Paul just asserts, he finishes leaving us to understand lies come from sinners. Lies are never going to be credited with making God look good. And then when we get to verse 9, so, verse 9, we're kind of left with this ending of this thought for them. What then? So, are we any better? So, are we any better at all than them? Barnhouse, Barnhouse kind of is a commentator. Barnhouse kind of put Paul and, and the person he's speaking with together. And, and, and the Jew who's listening to the argument, he and Paul are talking, having this discussion, which isn't a real discussion, okay? It's a, it's a theoretical discussion. It's a rhetorical discussion. And they look over at all of the pagans of the world. You and I can think of, think about all the unbelievers of the world, all the all the ways people are wicked, all the ways that, that sinfulness is sinful, all the ways that it's repulsive to you and I even. And this person who's been listening to Paul is 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 looking at all of the bad, pondering all of the different ways that people would would do wickedly. And then the question is asked, so are we any better than they? That's the last question. Are we any better than they? And what's the answer? No. This is the essence of the bad news of the gospel. If, if, if you have come to understand some of the gospel and then begin to exalt yourself and how you've got it together and how you do right, you do good, and this is why God likes you now. That is not what the gospel is. You are a sinner. You lie, you covet, you steal. You're prideful. This this last question, are we better than them? Are we any better than them? Is the leveling effect of the gospel. It's the reality of manhood and womanhood that says you have no merit to bring God. You're low. You're you're, you're not a creature with some special thing to bring to the Creator that makes the Creator go, wow, what an amazing specimen of humanity you are. I can't wait to save you and bring you to heaven. This is not the essence of the Gospel. The Gospel says that all men are without these merits. 
The gospel says that sin has corrupted all men and women. Sin affects the way you think. Sin affects the way you fail. Sin affects the way you do your business. Sin affects the way you love your spouse. Sin affects the way you treat your children. Sin has corrupted all of your life and and your humanity. Any and all false worship, immoral pleasure, unethical ways, prejudice, Pride. All of these things are an offense to God. And the last question makes it clear that everybody is guilty of these things. All of you and I are prideful. All of you and I are selfish. All of you and I are tempted by perversions. This is the state of what it means to be in Adam. Fallen in Adam. The last question is like saying, is God saying we're as guilty as them? Is God saying we're as guilty as them? Is God saying that, and and you can fill in the blank, every one of you has a certain kind of person you dislike the most. Every one of you has a kind of person who is the most unworthy. Look at that person in your mind's eye and and you're going to ask, are we really as bad as them? And in terms of the gospel reality, in terms of our lostness and Sin, yes. Are we really as bad as them? That's the question in verse 9. Are we better than them? In no wise is what he says. There's no way you're better. There isn't a way that you're better than them. That's the answer to the question. In no wise. You are not better. It has been previously charged. We're all under sin. Charge both Jews and Greeks that they're all under sin. There is no way you're better, and it has been previously charged. I'm just going to look at two examples, three examples of of, of the previous charges. Look at chapter 1, verse 19. This is one of the charges. It's been previously charged that Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Chapter 1, verse 19. That which may be known of God is manifest in them, it means all men in their conscience have a, an awareness, a, a knowledge of this. It's been manifest in them for God hath showed it to them because when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, nor were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. That's a proof. Paul has proved it. The testimony in your own conscience is that you have not been faithful to acknowledge him as God and to give him thanks in your hearts. All men are guilty of this. It's a proof. It's just a simple proof. That's what we saw there. Look at Romans 1.28. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. This proof is a tiny bit different. Do you and I see samples of of what Paul calls reprobation here? Do we see reprobation in the world around us? Well, that means is 
as man thinks and behaves in this way, God has given them over to that mind. That's proof that these testimonies are true about the sinfulness of man. You see men living according to their pleasures, according to their idolatries, according to their covetousness. Do you see this? Yes, you do. Well, why is that true? It's because God has given them over to it. That's a proof of the Jews and the Gentiles alike being under sin. Not retaining God in your knowledge, God gave them over to reprobate mind to do those things which are not seemly. Just one more. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you practice the same things. So the other proof is, is that the one who has the capacity and the ability to judge is actually a person who does these things that they are making judgments about. And we, we find this in our own lives. These charges have been laid out, they've been detailed out, they've, they've been explained to us. And, and the question, are we any better than they, is even answered in all of those charges that are laid out. And, and this question is, is a combination of pride and confusion. The last question is a question of pride. In other words, it's offensive to be seen to be a person who's low, to be a person who's a sinner like the worst kinds of sinners. That's that's a very embarrassing and and shameful situation to find yourself in. If if you're being compared to people who all of your life you've, you've thought of as very low, you're not depraved like low, very bad people. That's hard to believe. That's that's hard to accept. And if you're caught in a lie, if you're caught in some shameful situation, almost all the time you'll deny it. Or you'll want to deny it. Why? Why do you want to deny it if you get caught in a lie? It's embarrassing. We don't want to be known as a liar, so we deny it. But if God has been teaching you to be humble, God has been working on you, and and you get caught in something like a lie, what does a believer do? We, We confess it. And we admit our shame. We, we, we acknowledge, yes, I, I'm a liar. I've lied. This is one of the gifts of, of the gospel, really, is we begin to realize that we're, we're sinners. Sin is at work in us. We can't completely escape its work in us, can we? It's always at work on us. But it is shameful. It's shameful to have sin at work in us. What is slowly dawning on, on the person here of, of Romans chapter 3, 
He's, he's been blind to his unrighteousness. He's been unwilling to acknowledge and admit his unrighteousness is so bad that God would have to judge it. He can't deal with that degree of, of condemnation and, and guilt. But he's, he's been told and he's realizing that he is a creature who is not godly. He is a person who is not righteous by nature. It just comes out of it. And his, his realization of this, his, his thinking of this, anybody who has to deal with this reality, which is everybody, if they're being confronted with the gospel, we must deal with this reality of God's charge of your unrighteousness, right? A Christian has come to terms with the reality that I am unrighteous. I am guilty of ungodliness before the perfection of the Creator, right? I, I am. But the gospel is good news. The word means good news. And so men admitting his shamefulness doesn't end in shame. It's the most strange story in the universe because having to come to grips with your shamefulness in your sin is the happiest story in the universe, isn't it? It's the greatest story in the universe. So this person who is used to elevating their standing before God, maybe by their deeds and maybe by their pretend goodnesses, he's told that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against him. And then he's got to decide, am I going to... Am I going to grab a hold of God's ways here? Am I going to agree with God's ways or am I going to stay in my own ways? Am I going to hold on to my own version of truth and comfort or am I going to hear what God is saying to me and am I going to believe what God's gospel has to say? Or in other words... I kind of like to think of it like this. Is God's opinion of me more valid than my opinion of me? Is God's opinion of me more valid than my opinion of me? See, the one who believes in the gospel has heard all of this and more. And he begins to look for the righteousness offered to him in Christ. He, he feels the sharp, penetrating accusation of God against him. And he feels its shame. And then you hear that God has actually offered to replace your unrighteousness with the righteousness of Christ. This is the gospel, is it not? The one who is not yet believing has never really seen himself or worried about the fact that God considers him ungodly and unrighteous. They, they, they don't want to deal with it. They can't deal with it or they've never contemplated it. But this revelation, this, this place in Romans is a crossroads. It is a place where men and women for centuries come to contemplate on these truths Am I any better than they? Is the wrath of God really revealed from heaven against someone like me? I'm really better than a lot of other people.
when he's told he's like the rest of the deplorables in the world. It could be too much to take. It could be too much to hear and receive. But I thought, what if they could just go back into their own oracles? What if they could go back into the words of God that that are from such an ancient time as to to you and I, I'm going to take you back into a, a period of time that is so long ago. Jews, have always acknowledged themselves as sinners. Jews have acknowledged their sin. Jews have confessed their sin. And they've had clear hope in God to do away with their sin. And so I wanted to look at that with you for a minute to help you realize that the Jews who are being addressed here simply need to be reminded to go back to what the Jews of ancient days knew was their source of hope. What is the source of hope from the Jews of ancient days? Look at Proverbs 20, verse 9. Are all Jews self-righteous Jews? Are all Jews people who think God is just going to save them because they're good people? Proverbs 20, verse 9. Who can say... I've made my heart clean. I'm pure from my sin. Proverbs 20, verse 9. Who can say that? What is the answer to the question in the proverb? Nobody. Proverbs 20, verse 9. Who can say what this... Who can say I've made my heart clean? Who can say that? Nobody. Who can say I'm pure from my sin? Nobody. That's exactly what we're reading in Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, right? Isn't that exactly what we're reading? The Proverbs reveal the heart of the believing Jew, doesn't it? The Jew doesn't come before God without sin. He knows he's a sinner. Look at Proverbs or Psalm 69.5. Look at Psalm 69.5. Oh God, you know my foolishness and my sins are not hidden from you. What is a man before God? Well, here, here he is right, right here. He's a sinner. He knows he's a sinner. He, he doesn't hide anything from God. He knows he's not hidden from God. When the scriptures teach you and I to confess our sins because he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, it's not to shame you. It's to remind you of who the Savior is. It's to remind you of who the forgiver of sin is. It's to remind you that you're the creature and he's the God who saves. You confess your sins. You don't hide them. You don't pretend they don't exist. Look at Psalm 130, verse 3. This one's pretty... Psalm 130, verse 3. The Jews of ancient days, they knew the gospel. They just didn't know the person of Jesus Christ yet. 
Psalm 130 verse 3 says, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Don't you realize that when the psalmist says this, he knows that God is going to make a way that he does not have to count your sin against you if you're trusting in him. Don't you understand that's what that says in that verse? Oh God, if you would mark iniquities, who could stand? The unspoken words are, I know I will stand, God, because you will take my iniquities away. Obviously, it's not written in the passage, but this has always been the hope of the believing Jew. God, if you were to keep track, we wouldn't stand. Take special note of David's hope. Take special note in Psalm 32, verse 5. Listen how the believing Jews of ancient days understood these things. Psalm 32, verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you. What do we call that under the new covenant? Repentance. Confession. I acknowledge my sin to you in my iniquity. I have not hidden. Have you ever felt like you want to hide your sins from God? You just don't want to say them. You just don't want to think about it, but you can't. You do things God doesn't see. You think things God doesn't see. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. What did this old covenant believer know? What did he know? What did he say for us in the word? What does the word say? You forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. What are the ancient ways? What do the believing Jews know? What do they do? They confess their sins. They repent of their sins. God, God forgave their sins before the Messiah was born. In due time, he will come. In the perfection of time, the Messiah will come. In due time, he will pay the penalty of sin. So these ones were believing by looking ahead. They were looking ahead and they were anticipating and waiting for and counting on God forgiving iniquity of sin. Look at Isaiah 43, 25. Look at Isaiah 43, verse 25. What, Lord, are we any better than they? No, you are not. You are as sinful as them. You are as shameful as them. You are as low as them. You are as guilty as them. Remember, think hard. Jew, your mother, your father, your brother read this to you when you were a child. Remember, Jew, Isaiah 43:25. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Turn to Micah 7. 
Micah 7 and verse 18. People seem to be easily offended by the gospel. When I tell people about the Lord Jesus, I ask people if they're ready to die and meet the Creator. I ask if they are knowledgeable of the teachings of Jesus, if they understand the gospel. And it seems to me that the thing people get most upset about, most quickly upset about, is when you speak about the sinfulness of men that needs to be reckoned before God. People don't want to be told they're a sinner. Look at Micah 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You want God to subdue your iniquities? <laughs> yeah. But if you don't tell him you have any, what is there to subdue? You don't need God if, if you don't have iniquities to subdue. You don't need the gospel if you're not a sinner. The gospel and all the promises of God are for sinners, right? I love these Old Testament passages. And will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. The Jews and Gentile sinners alike need to look honestly at these charges Paul has laid against your heart, against mine, against your sinfulness, against mine. Christians know these things and we, we delight to know the truth of these things. We, we revel to realize that the charge of this shame is an offer of hope. Paul's teaching that men will face the wrath of God because of their unrighteousness is, is a true as true as a sunrise. Men will face the wrath of God for their unrighteousness. Good men and bad men are bad. Good men and bad men are bad under sin. That's, that's the conclusion of Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3. You're bad under sin. From chapter 1 and verse 16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because he's in the process of revealing hope from the wrath to come. He's in the process of revealing righteousness, the righteousness of God. Right? The righteousness of God. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Not your righteousness. You're not going to make your righteousness, package it up and hand it to God and say, I'm wrath-proof now. You need the righteousness of God. And the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. And the just will live. You could say the righteous 
will live. The just, the righteous will live by faith is what he said all the way back there in the Savior. Now, note the Spirit's insistence. The Spirit is the one who has given us the inspired Word of God. Note the Spirit's insistence of sin's role in man's condemnation. Okay, that is the unmistakable declaration of what we have been studying and reading to this point. The Spirit is insisting your sin disqualifies you from righteousness. It disqualifies you from standing before God. It requires God's wrath against you. Do not hide this or avoid this in your sharing the gospel with people. This is the first part of of you and I speaking or understanding the gospel. The hope of men begins with understanding how sin has separated us from the righteousness of God. We must understand how sin has made us unrighteous. That is gospel step number one. No argument will protect or exclude a person from God's charge of unrighteousness. We've read of many arguments that might have been Put against God and say, no, I'm I'm not that person, God. You will not do that to me, God. No argument will protect a person from this charge. And all men must admit, in answering to this question in Romans 3, 9, are we any better than they? All men must answer that question and say, no. Because if you can't answer that question, no, then the gospel is not for you. We are not better than they. And when we can say we are not better than they, then the gospel is for us. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that great? The gospel is for you when you realize you share all of the unrighteousness of men. Can you understand now, maybe with greater appreciation, that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is God's wrath poured out on the perfect Son. Can you understand and appreciate the value of that in light of Romans 1, 2, and 3? What is wrath for? It is for the unrighteous. It comes for the unrighteous. And the Lord Jesus on the cross receives the wrath of God against men. God judged the sins of men in the perfect Lamb whose death is an atonement for sin. Christ's righteousness becomes yours by your faith in Christ. The wrath of God has already come on the Christ. For you who have put your hope and your trust in Christ, the wrath of God has been poured out on the Lamb. The Lamb who suffered in your stead. And so when you meet God at the last day, when the day comes and it finally comes, and and it's coming. We don't know when. But when the day comes, and 
we may give some account of God, of ourselves to Him. You're asked to, I don't think anybody's ever really going to ask this question, but sometimes people say this, what, what will you say to God? Why should you come into heaven? Why should you be allowed into heaven? I don't really think we're going to be asked that question, but maybe. Don't say, I've done pretty good. I've been a pretty good person. Don't say that. Don't tell God you're, you wish to enter the kingdom of heaven based on your merit. What are you going to say? Whose, whose righteousness is going to bring you into the eternal kingdom? Whose goodness? Christ's. Christ's righteousness. Christ's perfection. Whose death is your death that had to be paid for your sinfulness? Christ's. So when you get near the eternal kingdom, don't deny your sin. Don't deny your sin. But praise God for the perfect Lamb who is your righteousness. Praise God for the life who is given instead of your life. All of us should should have grief about sin and our own sinfulness. Be reminded today that when we sin, we can repent of our sins. We can ask forgiveness again of our sins. And the perfect forgiveness of God and Christ is always for you who have put your trust in the Lord Jesus. And if you've never realized what the hope of eternal life is, it is your unrighteousness being put on the Lord Jesus. And so we repent of our sins and we say, God, thank you for the Lamb who died in my place. I'm going to pray with you for a minute and we'll sing a closing hymn together.